He is a teacher, an author, a preacher. He's an archaeologist whose team recently made a stunning discovery in Israel. He's Dr. Michael Hazel. I'm John Bradshaw, and this is our conversation. Dr. Michael Hazel, thanks so much for being here. It's great to be here with I you again. I appreciate you taking your time. Yeah, I should have said welcome back. Great to have you on Conversations again. Last time you were here, you were an archaeologist. Fast forward to today, not much has changed. You're still an archaeologist. I'm going to ask you about archaeology. Now, pardon the question. Does it ever get old? Well, you know, some, some archaeologists would say their life is in ruins, but uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't get old. There's always something new. There's always new discoveries that are made, yeah. always new things that are coming up out of the ground. And yeah, we, we delve into ancient things, but um, you just never know when that new discovery is going to take place. And sometimes it happens even after, after you're done with the excavation years later. Mm-hmm. Today, you're a professor of Near Eastern Studies at uh, Southern Adventist University. That's right. You're the curator you yes. run the lynn h wood archaeological museum so so you're you're serious about this archaeologists do their thing in every setting on the globe right how did you end up digging in israel when you could have been in turkey or syria or jordan similar but different you could have been in africa or the united states or the pacific islands what drew you to do what you do where you do it when I was 17, I went with my dad to Israel for the first time. And growing up as a Christian and as a, my father was an Old Testament scholar and, and, a, and a theologian and pastor, and I always was fascinated with, with the world of the Bible. And so I think, you know, yes, archaeology spans the entire globe wherever there's ancient civilizations, but I, I would say that I was always interested in the biblical area of, of and I started out in Jordan, working in Jordan, um, but they, th that project only was going every two years. So I was wanting to get as much experience as I could. And so on the off year, when they weren't in the field, I went to work in Israel. They offered me a staff position with my airfare paid. And as a, as a poor student, I was like, that's a good deal. That was attractive. <laughs> so I ended up staying in Israel for most of my career. I've dug also in Cyprus and I've worked in Egyptology. But, but as far as excavations go, my career has been primarily in Israel. We've talked about this before. The work of an archaeologist is not all Fourth of July fireworks. Uh, it's I'm, I don't want to put phrases wrong, but long periods of tedious work in the hot sun, perhaps for little or no results in the short term. It may come later and, and you hang in there. But the excitement of it. Let's go back to when you were a kid or a, a, a junior archaeologist, brand new at this. What were the things? Tell me about some of the things you saw or experienced that were wow moments for you. It might have just been seeing the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, but what were some of those wow things as you were getting your feet wet or easing into archaeology? Well, going back to that first trip, I, I remember we had just arrived in Jordan. We were at the site of Petra, which is an amazing... We've been there together. We've been there together, yeah. And, great and it's an amazing place. Yeah. I think it's still my favorite site in the Middle East. It's just uh, this rock-carved city, you know, in, in the middle of nowhere in the desert in the mountains of Edom. But uh, we were staying in a hotel, which ironically Harrison Ford, the Indiana Jones, had stayed in during his filming there some years earlier. We're staying in the same hotel, and there were only two hotels back then in, in Petra or outside of Petra in the Wadi Musa. 
and I couldn't sleep at night. We had just arrived, um, you know, it was jet lag and all of that. And I remember getting up and going out on the balcony and looking over this sleepy little town. It was a full moon, and I just, it, it was like I had been transported back into biblical times. These sleepy houses, today Petra is very developed. There's 70 hotels or more. But back then, my first trip, you know, many years ago, almost, almost 40 years ago now, was a very it was very small and, and and I just felt transported back it was and it was surreal and and I think that connection with not only the word, world of the Bible but the people there and then visiting those places just was uh, life changing for me. How do you find people respond to biblical archaeology? There are magazines, there are organizations, and what I'm asking you do a lot of public presentations, a lot of academic scholarly presentations, very different environment. There are many times that you'll speak to audiences on the subject of biblical archaeology. What excites people, interests people, do you think about, about biblical archaeology? Why is it attractive to so many people? I would say that because the Bible is constituted in history, history for Christians and for Jews matter. They, they are, they are uh, part of our, uh, that history is part of our identity. It's part of why we're here and, and, and what has made us and, and why, we, why we do the things that we do today. And so when people read the Bible, um, they wonder, did these things actually take place? Where were these locations? And actually that was the impetus for the beginning of archaeology. If you go back to the very beginning of the whole discipline of archaeology, Europeans were reading the Bible antiquarianism and the interest in ancient things was beginning to take hold during the the Renaissance and then what followed up from the Renaissance period and people began to explore those places in the Middle East and started excavating in places like Nineveh and Babylon and various places so really that was I think it, it comes from a drive of, of wanting to discover wanting to understand and wanting to investigate the world that that God created and that God God placed us in and to get back to our roots and and why we are who we are today. Before long, we're going to talk about a remarkable discovery, something that has shared. Look, I don't think it's an exaggeration. It's a revolutionary discovery that was made by a team you were leading in Israel. We'll get to that soon. I want to ask you this. So for me as a Christian, you know, we've, we've walked together in some of these places. You mentioned Petra, but uh, the Pool of Siloam mm-hmm. and, and you know, where the Garden of Gethsemane may have been, certainly was, def- was near, uh, and, and some of these amazing places. And as a Christian, you say, Jesus was here. You know, this is where, this is where Jesus healed the man who was blind and told him to go over there to that pool, right. the Pool of Siloam. Right. So exciting. Right. You have many close friends who are Jews and they're archaeologists. I don't ask this question out of sheer ignorance. I want to give you the opportunity to address this. So as a Christian, I say Jesus was here. Jewish people are studying archaeology not through the lens of Jesus was here. What excites Jewish people about archaeology? What's firing them up? I think what's firing them up is that same Obviously, the history of, of the Hebrew Bible, or the Tanakh, as they would call it, the, 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 the history of, of why they are there and that, that nation aspect, and it's their, it's their national history. It, it's, it, why we, it's, it's why we do uh, North American archaeology maybe here. Um, so, so that is certainly the case for, for many of them. So you've been digging recently in 
a town that you call Lahish, a location that you call Lahish, but us Philistines call Lakish. So Lahish is where? It's located in the very southern part of Judah. Um, it's located about um, an hour south, maybe a little bit less from Tel Aviv. Uh, it is a site that is located in ancient times along the border to Philistia. So it was one of the guardian cities that gui- guarded the main entryways and the main highways leading up to Jerusalem. Um, and it was before Jerusalem was established as the capital of Israel and was a Jebusite city. Um, Lachish was also a Canaanite city. So it was one of those cities conquered by the Israelites when they came in, mm. when Joshua came in. The famous story, when the sun stood still, um, over Ahalon, that was that was uh, that was the battle among the kings of the south, including the king of Lachish. So that's where Lachish is first mentioned in the Bible. I'm going to come back to Joshua. I'm going to come back to Lachish in just a moment. I, I, I just thought I'd ask you about this. You've spent tons of time in Israel. What do you like about Israel? I don't want to ask you, do you like Israel? You have to say yes, and I'm sure you do. But but. So many of us, well, I've been once or twice, but most people have never been there and will never go there. What do you like about it? How, how does that country speak to you? What appeals to you? And I don't just mean the food, because the food is Middle Eastern, and so it's fantastic. But what do you, what's, what's Israel like? Talk to me about that. The food is incredible. I mean, it's just incredible. Uh, but the people are too. And, and Israel is just one of these places. People go to Israel because of the history. They go to Israel because, of course, family connections, other connections. But the tourists that go there are going because of the history. Layers and layers and layers of history um, that go back thousands of years. So just a couple of weeks ago, I was in Boston and you know, you're walking on the Freedom Trail. We went to on the on the trail that that Paul Revere Road, you know, to, to warn of the, of the upcoming battles that were going to take place. Um, we were standing on the bridge where the, the shot that changed the world took place, you know. But that's all modern history from my perspective. You know, this, this only happened a few hundred years ago. But in Israel, you're going back to all these civilizations that lived in that place for, for thousands of years, and you're able to, to experience those places um, and that's what people are going for. Here we have national parks that are based on nature, and there are some of those in Israel as well, but most of the national parks that millions of people visit are archaeological sites. So you have these archaeological sites, these cities that just go back through history and through time, and to me that's what makes the place very, very, very special. Um, so we're working with people, right? Uh, and we go to sites and we've got... 16 different countries represented at these projects. Sometimes we have between 120 to 150 people there. We're working with the Hebrew University and their group of students. We bring, you know, 50 to 60 students and staff from Southern Adventist University. We've got other universities around the world that we're working with. And you're all there. People are speaking different languages. You're experiencing that kind of this microcosm of the world right there at the dig site. But you have one common scientific goal, and that is to go back and to actually excavate um, ancient history and try to scientifically figure out how people lived back then, um, what they ate, what kind of houses they built, um, how their fortification systems were developed, uh, how they interacted with the neighbors around them. And as you do that, you realize that, that 
life really hasn't changed that much over the years, that the people that lived then were trying to survive just as we're trying to survive today. So, yeah. And then on the weekends, we're traveling to Jerusalem. Um, Jerusalem's just a, a very complex, multi-layered history. You walk through the gates of Jerusalem, and you're walking through gates that were built by Suleiman the Magnificent in the 1500s, a contemporary of Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo, who are working in Italy at the same time when all this is happening. And so you're, you're walking into churches that were built in the fourth century by Constantine the Great, you know, like the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Or you walk into a crusader church that's still standing from 1099, St. Anne's Church. And we love going to that church because it's just, uh, well, it has a 12-second echo, and the music that you sing in there is just absolutely incredible. So we take students there. You walk up to the Mount of Olives, and you get up there, and you look over this old city that's still there after all these years. And, and yeah, that's where it kind of gets a little bit more complicated, right? Because you've got this one place, this one mountain, where Abraham brought up Isaac to sacrifice him that has been the focal point for these three great world religions for all these centuries of time. You know, Judaism, then Christianity, then Islam. And you're looking over the Temple Mount and you think about what Jesus said, not one stone will be left upon another. You think about him weeping over Jerusalem. You think about these things and, and then you realize, you know, he, he foresaw all of the th- events that we're experiencing today, that we're, um, that we're involved with today. And, and it's just an incredible thing because all of these things come to life in a way that is, is, is very unique and very special. And that, to me, is what makes Israel so exciting and such a beautiful place. And it's our second home. We've lived there for many years. Um, we have excavated there for, I think it's almost 40 years now that I've been working in that part of the world. And uh, it's just an incredible experience to, to take part in all of that. So, so Jerusalem is very important to yes. Christians. Absolutely. Very important to Jews. Yes. Very important to Muslims. Right. What do Muslim historians make of archaeology in Israel? Any real interest there or is not, not their thing? Yes, Palestinians, of course, are extremely interested in this part of the world because this is, this is their world as well. The Dome of the Rock has been uh, there on the Temple Mount for um, almost 1,400 years. It's a, it's a huge amount of time. And uh, there are uh, archaeologists that are working at Berzite University in the West Bank, um, at Bethlehem University. Um, there is the Department of Antiquities for the Palestinian Authority as well. So this is, this is their history. Um, as well as uh, Christian history, as well as Jewish history. So that's what makes this place really amazing, is, is that you, you have in one small location this confluence of all these different religions and all these different um, historical interests to, to, to expand and to understand that part of their history. It can get political sometimes. Yeah. But of there course, is an as well. interest on the, on the part of there is the, uh, Muslim definitely. scholars to look at archaeology through a Muslim lens. Most definitely. That and would of be course, the Temple Mount is the yes. focal point of yeah. all of these controversies. Which is and where conflicts. we get controversial, sure. That's right. Yeah. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's get back to Lahish. We, we don't know long before we go to the break, but how, how did you wind up in Lahish? Like, why there? 
Why you, there? Look, you could have gone anywhere, couldn't we you? We could have gone anywhere, but we were part of a regional project that was really focused on understanding the early history of Judah and how Judah developed and how the kings of Judah developed. So he, we had been working at Kirbet Kayafa, which was from the time of Saul and David. How did that kingdom develop and expand and move into something much bigger? And so as we were looking at regionally what sites to work at in that southern part of the kingdom, um, we really were interested in Lachish, and we were hoping to excavate there. But it was a very difficult, very difficult process because another institution, Tel Aviv University, had been working there for uh, over 20 years. Uh, and kind of, you know, when you work at a site for a long time, it kind of becomes a bit territorial. Yeah, you know, I can this imagine. is our site. Yeah. Um, and so uh, that, was a, that was quite a, a process to be able to get the license to work there. And, and just quickly, you identify a place you want to go and then you ask? Or does oh, the, yes. Oh, yes. You or, ask permission. Or, 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 no, what I mean is, does the government say, we have these 20 places that we're willing to let you work and choose one? Which we, we, usually, we usually choose where okay, we want to so work. Okay, so you petition to be able to work in a That's certain correct. place. You justify that, and then they are the thumbs up or thumbs down. That's right. Oh, interesting. So you made it to Lahish, and in recent times, a phenomenal discovery was made. We'll talk about that in a little more detail in just a moment. With Dr. Michael Hazel, I'm John Bradshaw. This is our conversation brought to you by It Is Written. Just a few hundred years ago, the Bible was not available to everyday people. Today, it's everywhere. What happened to bring the Word of God to the world? Join me for Ancient Wisdom, Present Power as archaeologist and theologian Dr. Michael Hazel takes us back in time to the events that led to the Bible being propelled to the forefront of Western society and then the world. We'll look together at a remarkable collection of rare books that tell the story of the advance of the gospel, of the battle between truth and tradition, of the life and death struggle between darkness and light, featuring artifacts of historical importance and insights that will grow and encourage your faith in God. Ancient Wisdom, Present Power, telling the story of some of the greatest events in human history and the development of the greatest story ever told. Don't miss Ancient Wisdom, Present Power, brought to you by It Is Written TV. You know that at It Is Written, we are serious about the study of the Word of God, and we encourage you to be serious about God's Word also. Well, I want to share with you another way that you can dig deeper into the Word of God. And here it is, itiswritten.study. Go online to itiswritten.study and you can access the It Is Written Bible Study Guides, 25 in-depth Bible studies that will walk you through the Bible. It's going to be good for you, and it's the sort of thing that you will want to tell somebody else about so that they can dig deeper into the Word of God and come to know the things of the Bible intimately. As you get into the It Is Written online Bible study guides, you'll understand the prophecies of the Bible, the plan of salvation, and more. So don't forget, itiswritten.study. Itiswritten.study. Welcome back to Conversations brought to you by It Is Written. My guest is Dr. Michael Hazel who is a member of the academic faculty at Southern Adventist University. He is the curator of the Lynn H. Wood Archaeological Museum, and he's an archaeologist who is spending time, kind of now, in Lahish in southern Judah. Now, Lahish, 
and Sennacherib, this, this colorful character from Assyria, are bound up together. Give me a little background about that, because I'd like to ask you some questions about Sennacherib. Sure. Well, we have these four great world kingdoms that we read about in, in, in the Bible. In Daniel chapter 2, for example, before Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, there was Assyria. Mm-hmm. It was the great, great empire before that. And Assyria plays a major role in the Bible. Uh, the prophets are, are, are warning the northern kingdom of Israel that if they don't repent, Assyria will come and they will cease to exist. They will be destroyed. Their, 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 their cities would be carried off, the Assyrians, which happened. The Assyrians, which happened. Yeah, the Assyrians, I'm they, sorry. They were tough customers back They then. were. British Museum recently did an, an exhibition of Assyrian art. And the reviewers of this said it's some of the most cruel, ghastly stuff they've ever seen. Because, I mean, there's a reason Jonah hated those guys. That's right. And, uh, in fact, they were crucifying people long before the Romans were. Uh, right. The Assyrians and the Babylonians. That's so right. we're dealing with some some tough tough guys. The Assyrian military tactics were some of the gru- most gruesome, yeah. and they used they used intimidation tactics. Mm-hmm. They would impale people outside the walls of the cities. In fact, when Nineveh was discovered in 1849, and the palace of Sennacherib was discovered, in his throne room, what we believe to be his throne room, there are. Uh, panels that describe this this attack against Lachish by mm. Sennacherib, oh, really? and they show probably the we believe maybe the head the 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 governor or the head of the city, the mayor of the city, being impaled outside the city walls. Oh. All of they show the captives going in front of the king, being paraded in front of the king. They show people being beheaded. They yeah. show they people being flailed alive, yeah, basically, yeah, yeah, like right. fish in front of the king. You and know, these are, these are some of the gruesome this tactics is, this that is the, the Assyrians that bragged about. On display at the British Museum that the that's reviewers right. were having a hard time getting through. That's right. So exactly. that's these guys. That's these guys. And, and, and so, the prophet said, these guys will come right. and get you. That's right. And they did. Tiglath Pileser III came. The yep. Bible talks about him coming. That was the first wave. Then, then Sargon II. And when Sargon dies, his son Sennacherib, he wants to finish the job. And only Judah's left now. Israel, the northern kingdom, is Go. gone. And now he's coming after Judah. And so only Jerusalem is standing between his ultimate goal, and that is to defeat Egypt. Egypt was the prize for all of these kingdoms from the from the north, from Mesopotamia. They wanted to conquer Egypt. And so Sennacherib comes down with his armies. The Bible says he destroys all the cities of Judah yeah. or captures them. And, uh, and of course, Jerusalem is an ultimate target. But in order to get to Jerusalem, he's got to get to Lachish first. So Lachish has to be defeated because that guards the main road leading up to Jerusalem. It was the second most important city after Jerusalem in the kingdom so of Judah. Deal. So it was a big deal. Now, if I remember right, when we were there, you pointed out how Sennacherib had built a siege ramp. That's right. I mean, that's how they did. They never had modern artillery. Explain that. Well, they built an enormous siege ramp to facilitate the battering rams going up against the city walls. Um, and they depict this on these walls um, in these reliefs at Sennacherib's palace um, of how that was done. So, and this is the oldest, oldest... Um, siege ramp ever discovered in history. Um, tons and tons of stones being used. We found the quarry there, by the way. We found, uh, we found the ramp. The British found the ramp. The Israeli a team from Tel Aviv University excavated the ramp. Um, and hundreds of sling stones, uh, 
a thousand arrowheads, some stuck in the wall still wow. today, wow. Um, have been found at the site. So all of this is part of the display that we have at our museum right mm -hmm. now, showing what Lachish was like before the attack, what preparations were made by the king, and then how Lachish was attacked and defeated by the Assyrian armies. The king at the time was? Hezekiah. Hezekiah. In the Bible it speaks about Hezekiah going in before the Lord. Number of people are named. That's right. Are you looking for that as archaeology, finding, finding that, finding reference to people? Does it get that specific in archaeology? It can. It can. And, and quite amazingly, um, there's two verses in Isaiah chapter 37 where he goes in before the Lord and it says, um, he summons then Shebna the scribe, Eliakim who is over the palace, and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. And the fact is that in Jerusalem, uh, two seal impressions were found. Um, and then at Lachish, two seal impressions were found. The two seal impressions at Lachish are Eliakim and Shebna, two of those individuals. Yeah, about that. And we, we discovered in 2014 the Shebna seal. And then in Jerusalem in 2009, just 10 feet apart from each other, we had uh, Hezekiah, his seal impression was found, and then Isaiah the prophet, which mm -hmm. was just a remarkable discovery. Yeah. So yes, sometimes we can get that specific. And we have some of those seal and seal impressions on exhibit here. And which, I'm going to state the obvious, which when people question the validity of the Bible, you know, I don't know what that proves, but man, oh man, I think I know what it proves. You know what I mean? That, that's got to bolster your faith and confidence in the reliability of the Word of God. Critical scholars have always questioned Isaiah's prophecies. As you know, he, he prophesies that Cyrus would be the... Uh, would be the conqueror of Babylon yeah, in Isaiah board, 44 board. and 45, right? Yeah. So what do you do with that if you don't believe that God intervenes in human history, that God doesn't send prophets, that God doesn't communicate with us? Yeah. How, if you're just believing in a scientific natural world and scientific naturalism, how do you account for that? So the fact that these two seal impressions were found next to each other in the same time period um, indicates that Isaiah was a contemporary of Hezekiah. And even though scholars have redated some portions of Isaiah to later times after the events that they describe prophetically, we have now better evidence that these were contemporary individuals and that Isaiah was an eighth century prophet. We've got to talk to you about the discovery you made because I think we can dig deep into that. Sorry, dig deep into that. <laughs> but Sennacherib was a serious guy and that army was mighty and they blew away everything in their path. And Judah, the cities of Judah, fell like dominoes. Two left. All they got to do is push through Lahish. Jerusalem is there. On to Egypt. History is changed. That's right. But it didn't happen. So, so take us there. How in the world, and, and I'm, I'm hoping you'll just tell this, this well-known story. How in the world did they fail to take Lahish? Well, the Bible is very clear of what happened. Um, Sennacherib himself never goes to, Lach to Jerusalem. He stays at Lachish, but he sends his Rabshakeh. He sends his armies. They surround the city. They give the city ultimatum. Um, there's, a, there's this wonderful, um, you know, discussion that takes place yes. or, or, or challenge that takes place by the Assyrian ambassador, the Rabshakeh. And, and instead, of, instead of Hezekiah... Um, surrendering the city, he goes into the temple before the Lord, and there's this wonderful, wonderful prayer that he prays. Um, and he acknowledges that all the other cities were destroyed of the other nations, and that those nations were not 
worshiping true gods, but gods made of wood and stone. But he says, you, O Lord, are the God of heaven and earth, and for your name's sake, will you please save the city? And the message comes back from Isaiah precisely that that is what will happen. And not only will Jerusalem be saved, but that Sennacherib would be going back to his home where he came from, and that he would be killed there by the edge of the sword. So all of these things are predicted. Then all of a sudden you have them camped around the city. The massive the, ju- army. the, massive army. Yeah. the, the Judeans wake up the next morning and they find a dead army there. The Bible says the angel of the Lord came down and destroyed the army of the Assyrians. And Sennacherib goes back to Nineveh. Yes. The Bible doesn't say this, but I like to think with his tail between his, his tail legs, between right? His legs. Oh, yeah. He goes back to Sennacherib. And then, and then there's about a 20-year gap. The Bible just says in the next verse, because it's not always interested in, you know, it doesn't flesh out all of the history, yeah. but it, it simply says, while he was worshiping in the temple of Nisroch, his god, his sons Adramelech and Sherezer struck him down with the edge of the sword. So he dies in his own temple. The irony there, here you have Isaiah worshiping and asking for God's deliverance in the temple in Jerusalem. But he goes back to his own temple, and while he's worshiping there, his own sons kill him, and he's left without, yeah. Backing up ever so slightly, that's a story where 185,000 Assyrian soldiers were left dead on the ground. Yeah, it's a huge army. 185,000 slain by the angel of the Lord. You know, there was no hope. There was just no hope. It was like when Jehoshaphat speaks to God and says, our eyes are up on thee. We have no hope. There was no hope. Um, without God intervening, there's no way Hezekiah was going to no. repel that army. No. But God intervened because there are times, or well, frequently, God intervenes for his name's sake. That's right. So, you're digging in Lahish now with all of this background. Um, when you went there, look, I, I, I know long hot days in the sun and some days you get nothing but a box of rocks. But there are other days. Um, you are digging confident that you'll find stuff or do you go to work at the beginning of a season and say well it may just be dust and rocks this this summer do you, do, do you, do you know you're going to find stuff we know we're going to find stuff yeah. we don't always know what stuff but right. we know, you know we also we know that the site of Lachish has been excavated at the time we were excavating by three other expeditions so we have a good idea of the stratigraphic history of okay. the site we have a good idea of who went was there who defeated this place we, we, we have a good idea of the chronology already. So we're looking for more stuff, I guess you could say. We're looking yeah. for more evidence. And so, um, so, yeah, so there are, but there are always surprises. Yeah. You know, we go with a certain research design, a certain hypothesis that we want to, want to accomplish. Yeah. But then there are surprises that we're not uh, expecting. Well, and there are and, reasons for that, right? Because and there's reasons you're, for you're, that because nobody digging, knows what's under the ground when you're starting. Three, working. four thousand years old, you're, right. looking, you're looking down and you can't possibly know what is or is not going to be there. But you do have an idea. You have an sure. idea, of sure. course, because this is a sure. science and right. it's, it's being done in other places. Right. So you made a phenomenal discovery. Now, on the surface... But that's the thing with the archaeology. You, you can't afford to just look at the surface. So, so explain a little bit about what happened there and, and the implications of the discovery made by the team from Southern Adventist University. Well, we were excavating in 2016. It was the first day of that season of excavation. We're in the field for six weeks. And uh, we've already excavated. Um, this is the fourth year of work. Okay. Um, we're there for five years. So this is the, the year before the last season. 
we're excavating the first day. We've removed all the geotextile that we've covered the site up with um, to preserve it over the winter and all the winter rains and everything. And um, on that first day in one of the squares, one of my students, Catherine Hessler and her team, they are working there and um, they have removed the geotextile. They're starting to excavate and they find a small, small fragment of something. It looks like a fragment of something. And it looks like a bone. Yeah. It, it kind of has the coloration of a bone, but it's covered and encrusted with dirt. So we have, we put pottery in a bucket yeah. that's marked with uh, special los, locus where it comes from, special, you know, all the location. All, all of this is very systematic. Everything has to be reconstructed three-dimensionally. Oh. So this goes into a bone bag. Is, is it common to find bones? Oh, yes. When we, we find thousands of bones. We find tens of thousands of pieces of pottery and lithic or stone implements and other artifacts uh, like the arrowheads we mentioned and sling stones and things like that. So it goes into a bone bag to be analyzed by a zoo archaeologist who's back at, at camp and will be cleaning and analyzing and looking at these bones and telling us what the diet of people were like back yeah, then, right? Yeah, yeah. So during our siesta that afternoon when we get back, he's working on all this. It's the first day, so he doesn't have a big backlog of bones. Um, so he's, he's cleaning them. And when we wake up and get ready for the next phase of our work that afternoon, which is pottery washing and pottery reading, dating the pottery that we find, uh, Dr. Mahara comes up to us and he says, uh, look, what you found this morning wasn't a bone. It, it, it technically is kind of a bone, but it's actually a tooth. It's, it's actually a tusk. It's from an elephant. It's elephant ivory tusk, oh. and it's an actual comb. It's an ancient comb. After I cleaned it, you can see the broken, you know, uh, the broken teeth of the comb. It has two sides. It has, you know, very narrow teeth on one side, just like our combs do, and then wider teeth on the other side. And uh, this is an ivory object. This is a luxury ivory object, and it goes into a different category now. Oh, it's yeah. no longer part of this you know, thousands of bones, it's now an object because it was worked. It was some, It was an artifact. So it goes into an object box. So it went into that object box. We, we then made notes in our, in our database and in our notebooks, and we had a very specific GPS reading of where that okay. was located. And we knew exactly, right. we've got to do all that. We knew exactly where it was. We made notations. It goes into a box for post-processing. Now, we do some processing out in the field. Um, we wash all the pottery, we analyze the pottery, but then for every season that you're in the field, you've got two to three years of publication work to do after the fact, where you're really in-depth analyzing all of this material, oh, wow. all this material culture. So, so at the time, you had no way of understanding how revolutionary this thing would be? No, because it was a comb, and we had a couple of other combs that we had, you know, there was another comb that we had found made out of bone, not of, out of ivory, so, so it, was just, a, it was an artifact, it was an just, artifact class, but it's just the thing. some expert later on is going to be looking at it, okay? okay? And, and we, we worked with different which, experts in the which field. Which is interesting, because you're making remarkable discoveries, but you don't even know you've made them. Sometimes you don't yeah. in the field. Sometimes you know right away in the field. Like the Eliakim seal impression, we read that right in the field, uh, and we knew exactly what that was in right. the field. We, exactly. we published it you know, a few years later, but, but we knew already in the field. With the comb, it went into a box. Somebody's going to look at it later. How, how excited are you to find a comb? I mean, is it, yeah, or is that just, it's just No, it a wasn't thing. a big, it was, okay. yeah, it was ivory. That was exciting because that's, cool. that's a luxury thing. Yeah. I mean, people don't usually have a lot of ivory around. They didn't in ancient times. That had to come either from from the heart of Africa, yeah. or there was potentially some elephants also recorded in the Syrian areas of Syria. But yeah, so it, it went into that box, and uh, 
and we're working on various aspects of, of all the material. We've got a guy working on all the pottery. We've been working with him for, for three or four years now. He's been analyzing all the pottery. We've got other people working on lithics and, and other people working on, on the metal objects. And, and so we've got people working on this. And, and in 2021, the end of 2021-22, uh, one of our colleagues, Dr. Madeline Mamshuglu, who is a biochemist, uh, pharmacologist, and expert in that field, she is interested in the combs because um, one of her relatives uh, is an expert in hair lice, and so she kind of has an interest in hair lice, and maybe the comb was used to get rid of hair lice. So she's, she says, I'm going to look at the combs in my home and, and, and start working on the combs. It's one category of artifacts we need to publish. So she is taking a microscope and she's thinking, I wonder actually if there are lice in this, between the teeth of this, the broken teeth okay. of this comb. And so she's looking carefully and sure enough, she finds a part of a louse. Oh, well. Which is kind of, okay. And, and interesting. I mean, is, is that significant? Is that, does it matter? Maybe not. I, it, I have some dermatology friends that got really excited and they said, look, dermatology goes all the way oh, back to that, that day, yeah, you know? Okay. So, but it's, 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 it's just, it's interesting because it describes, it, it, it's an artifactual evidence of the comb being used for a certain purpose, sure. right? Yeah. So that was interesting. Yeah. And so the louse was found. Then she decides, I'm going to get some pictures looking a little bit further away from the comb and I'm going to take my iPhone out. She had a brand new iPhone 13. I'm going to take some overall shots, not microscopic now, overall. And that's when the amazing discovery was what, made. What do you, what, what do you, with a, with a phone? With a phone, yeah, with her iPhone. We'll find out what that discovery was. And I want to find out why it was made by a pharmacologist with an iPhone and not by an archaeologist with a, a manual or a textbook. Great stuff with Dr. Michael Hazel. I am John Bradshaw. This is our conversation. Back with more in a moment. Brought to you by It Is Written. I know your works and where you dwell. These are some of Christ's first words to the ancient church of Pergamos. Pergamos was filled with pagan temples, one of which was dedicated to a god whose symbol was a serpent. So what did Jesus have to say to early Christians in Pergamos? You hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr. But I have a few things against you. What pitfalls could a church that had been so recently delivered from persecution stumble into? And what does Christ promise to those who overcome? Find out by watching The Seven Churches of Revelation, Pergamos, and learn how you can be among the overcomers. The Seven Churches of Revelation, Pergamos, brought to you by It Is Written TV. More and more people are watching It Is Written TV. They're watching their favorite It Is Written programs, listening to inspiring sermon series, and much more. They're watching them here, here, and even here. See for yourself why people are turning to It Is Written TV to watch their favorite Christian programs live and on demand. Watch It Is Written TV for free anytime on Roku, Apple TV, and at itiswritten.tv. Every Word is a one-minute Bible-based daily devotional presented by Pastor John Bradshaw and designed especially for busy people like you. 
Look for Every Word on selected networks or watch it online every day on our website, itiswritten.com. Welcome back to Conversations brought to you by It Is Written. My very special guest is archaeologist, academic, teacher, university professor, Dr. Michael Hazel from Southern Adventist University, who moments ago found a comb replete with hair lice. Strikes me as interesting. There are experts in hair lice. There are. I guess, I, I guess f- to be fair, there are experts in everything, and that's why we understand stuff. Well, and, and this was a problem in the ancient world as it was in, in the modern world, too, yeah. you know. So, um, so this comb was designed, part of this comb was designed to remove those lice, yeah, evidently, and, and people were doing that. In a moment, I want to ask you about the biblical significance of finding this, because we haven't got to that. And, I'm, and what I know is that there is great biblical significance. You said you found a comb, but you, you find combs. You've mentioned other combs that you found, and even in the same place. But a member of your team was taking a photo. Interesting this, because we're, this is something very significant. And on a whim, I doubt it was a whim, more like an impression from God, I would say, but just thought I'll take up my phone and take a picture. An overall picture. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So what'd she find? She, the right, light wasn't quite right, so she brought over a desk lamp so she'd have raking light across the comb. Okay. And, as, and then she's looking through her iPhone, and all of a sudden she sees scratches on the surface of the comb, and she says, that looks like an inscription. Interesting. Those look like letters, and she gets very, very excited. Why hadn't you seen those letters? Because, first of all, when we saw the comb, it was initially it was covered in dirt. It was dirty. It's a very tiny object. It's only two and a half centimeters in size. Okay. Um, which is and just which means inch. the letters are tiny, tiny, and uh, they weren't super well preserved. And so, you know, we looked at this in a cursory way okay. in the field. We looked at it then after it had been cleaned yeah. um, by our zooarchaeologist, and then it got put in a box until people looked at it later. So and this often is, happens. It's easy to miss stuff. It's easy yeah. to miss okay. stuff. And that's why you have teams that go back and get right. it. So this is being looked at now and photographed. How long after it had been excavated? It's five and a half years Five now. and a half years. Yeah. So we're, 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 in early, we're in early 2022. Interesting, isn't it, about archaeology? You find something really significant. You don't even know for five and a half years. We have a, we have a we, you know, there's a, there's a tablet that, that has been in the basement of the British Museum for, for decades and decades and decades, since the 1800s when it was found in Babylon. And Got suddenly it. in 2007, somebody finds the name Nebuchadnezzar from Jeremiah on it. Wow. So these things happen. Yeah. They, they happen frequently. Okay, okay. So she she's, 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 looking, she's looking through her iPhone. She sees the inscription. She immediate, immediately contacts um, my co-director of the project, Yossi Garfinkel. They um, they also uh, contact Daniel Weinstube, who is an epigrapher, an expert on languages and, and, and the history of the script. He says, this is definitely inscription. I need to look at the comb in person. Then I'm contacted back here. This is all during lockdown, okay? This oh, is 2022, oh, so Israel, yeah. I haven't been to Israel in a year and a half since COVID. Um, and so we're, we're, we're working, you know, on stuff, but, but <laughs> and communicating by email and Zoom. And, and so... Now the question is, where was the comb found? What was the context? How, what does it date to? Um, unfortunately, the dating of the comb by archaeological stratigraphy, it was found in a pit dug from the time of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, so it's 586. It's, it's a very late date. Yeah. It was deposited in this garbage pit of some type, or maybe it was a storage pit. Maybe it was, we don't know how it got there, but at any rate. So that doesn't help us very much with the date. 
too much because it could have been earlier, right? Mm. But then we send it off for radiocarbon dating at Oxford, and there's not enough carbon in the samples for carbon dating, so oh. that doesn't help us. We send two samples. It doesn't work. So now we're left with the with the script itself, with the evolution or the development of the script itself, and, and these letters that change over time. Weinstube is very excited. He begins working on it. Over the next six months, we work on a very scientific article, looking at it from all angles. Um, we published that article in October 22, 2022, in October two, uh, 2022. And, um, and, and, and Yossi Garfinkel, my colleague from the Hebrew University, is on Southern's campus just as that is published and just on our way to the professional meetings. And we give a lecture here on our campus and announce this to the public for the first time. The media release goes out and all of a sudden we're getting calls for three nights straight and days straight from people from all over the world. BBC, um, NBC, C CNN, um, the Smithsonian, New York Times. It's on the New York Times. Uh, there's a big article there. Um, why? Because of the significance of the discovery, which is the first complete sentence using an alphabet, not in hieroglyphics, not in cuneiform, but using a form of the alphabet that we still use today in all of our alphabetic languages. And it's the earliest such complete sentence ever found in Israel. Oh, and that, really? is, is, that is huge. Wait, wait. A minute ago, it was in a pit that could have dated it to 586, <clears throat> but you dated it to when? We dated it much earlier based on the shape of the letters. They're still pictographic letters. In other words, um, the letters, the way the alphabet developed originally was from Egyptian hieroglyphs, which were pictures. Sure. And then those pictures were transferred and eventually became the letters we have today. Yeah. Um, so the letter A, for example, that we write, you know, like this. Actually, we need to turn it around. It's an ox's head with two horns sticking oh, up. That's, uh, um, that's where our letter A comes from, the Aleph of ancient times, uh, of ancient Hebrew. So they, they developed the alphabet. And what we could see, we have two kofs on this, on this inscription. Kof means monkey, and it actually is a monkey. It's got a body, it's got a head, it's got a tail, it's got two legs. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, on the comb. It's on the comb oh, as, as, oh. as a picture, wow. not as the letter that later develops into what we have today uh -huh. or what we have in Hebrew today. So what's fascinating is this is a Canaanite, we believe a Canaanite inscription. We have tentatively dated it back to about 1700 BC, 3,700 years ago. Wait, wait. put so, that in some context. When was the Exodus? The Exodus was in the 15th century. 1400. The, so this is, this is hundreds of years before the 300 Exodus. 300 years before Moses and the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. Which is significant, of course. So this, this is why, why it was so important. This is the earliest complete sentence. And it has a verb, it has a subject, it has an object, it has all the elements of a sentence. And it is, it is on this, it's written on this What column. does it say? Well, that's the interesting thing. You'd think it was something very spectacular, yeah, something yeah, yeah. mentioning a, Hebrew, a, a queen or, sure. or a Canaanite king or something like this. And, but it's very mundane. It's a wish or desire that was written on the comb and given to someone. And it says, may this tusk, because oh. it was made out yeah. of elephant ivory, may this tusk root out the lice from the hair and beard. Well, that's very mundane. Yeah, but from an archaeological usually people laugh, you know. But no, from I can an archaeological from perspective, it's kind of neat because it we find a lice of a louse in the comb, yeah. and then 
and then it's describing the function yeah. of the artifact of what it's supposed to do, yes, which is kind does. of neat, you know. Yeah. So it's not it's not and, and and this shows that people were interested in writing mundane things even that early in history, and they were writing with an alphabetic script, and that alphabetic script is the same alphabetic script alphabet. The deriv der that, that our alphabets derive from yeah. today. So after thousands of years, I don't I don't expect you to know this, but you've thought about this. I'm assuming, who wrote that and to whom did they write it? That was the question that we were yeah. asking there as well. Was this comb inscribed at Lachish? Because the ivory didn't come from Lachish. The ivory had to come from somewhere else. Yeah. Where was the comb produced and who? Where and when was the inscription placed there? Any, These are all questions. Any that idea how you can know that? We have found more Canaanite inscriptions or proto-Canaanite inscriptions at Lachish than any other site in the entire country of Israel. Oh, wow. This wow. is the twelfth inscription in, but usually we only find a few letters, maybe okay. a word, this never a, a complete sentence. We have found also this, these proto, proto, we sometimes call them proto-Sinaitic inscriptions because they've also been found in Sinai, they've also been found in Egypt. So we know that there's a development happening that starts around 1800 BC or so, but now we have this 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 ancient sentence here at Lachish, which means that the Canaanites and those that followed were using already the alphabet. And, and let, let's, let's state it this way. This was a revolution in writing because before that you were writing in Egyptian hieroglyphics. In the New Kingdom, you had 1,500 of these picture pictures, you know, mm. these glyphs. Later on, it, by the Greco-Roman period, there were 10,000. It was a very complicated language system. You could write it up from... from this direction down, you could write it from right to left or left to right, you know, it was very difficult. Some of them were simply phonograms, some of them were ideograms, they represented ideas, some of them represented sounds, it was very complex. But now everything was simplified to a simple alphabet of 30 to 21 letters, depending on, you know, how the language is developed later on, that could now be combined into words. And that's still the system that we use yeah. today. Yeah. And that, that, that made communication and language communication much easier for the common person to, so, to so learn. From a biblical point of view, the significance of this, why is, why is this so exciting from a biblical point of view? Well, for one thing, it tells us that communication and language goes back very, very early in our history. Communication and language in an alphabet goes back very early. Um, you know, we have the printing press, Gutenberg, the Gutenberg Bible in 1455. Yeah. The yeah. printing press was the next revolution in communication because now you could mass produce books and pamphlets and send them out. Uh, we've done some programs on that before. Yeah. Um, today we have the internet. But all of those discoveries and all of those revolutions still use the alphabet. Contingent upon there being some way to communicate. And That's the right. Was That's that. right. Now, biblically, biblically we know that the Bible was not written in Egyptian hieroglyphics. Right. We know that the Bible was not written in cuneiform, this, this Mesopotamian system of writing, which the Egyptians also used at that time in history. So what, what we have in, in Scripture, in the Bible, is Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. Yeah. They're all alphabetic languages, and they all are deriving from these early alphabets. So when Moses is writing Genesis during his exile, when he's writing Exodus, Leviticus, and you know, Deuteronomy, Numbers, when he's writing these, these books of the Bible, what is he writing them? How is he writing them? 
He's using not hieroglyphs. He's mm. not using Akkadian or, or you know, the, the cuneiform script. And we now know that, that, and we have now an example of this in Israel as well, but we know that these languages are being used in, in a mundane way to put a little wish on a comb. If they're used that way, couldn't Moses, who was well-trained as an Egyptian pharaoh, who was well-trained as a future pharaoh of Egypt, who was well-trained as in, in the palace for those 28 years, couldn't he have have had access to this as well. And, and this gives us better credibility to that fact that we have writing going back all the way that early. Uh, the writing and alphabetic scripts. There are some people that, who doubt that. There are some people who cast dispersions on the Bible. Uh, it, it, does, does this answer an argument? Is, does this s- settle some things? It doesn't answer the argument about Moses being the author of those five books, as right. the Bible claims, but it, it, it gives us further evidence that that kind of writing would have been possible at that time in history. And, and it settles the question, you know, we've had questions, when was Hebrew invented? Well, we have found some of the earliest inscriptions of Hebrew at Caiapha dating back to the time of David and Saul, mm-hmm. the time about 1000 BC. This takes us back 700 years earlier. We found the Dead Sea Scrolls around, uh, you know, 150 BC. The oldest text that we have from scripture is uh, the famous prayer of Aaron, the Lord bless you, the Lord keep you. Lord, make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. That prayer was found dating back to about 650 BC. So now we're able to go back a thousand years earlier and say this type of writing in the alphabetic script was possible um, hundreds of years before Moses was around, which lends credibility, yes, I think, definitely to that whole, whole scenario. There's something you said that surprises some folks, and they, they, want, they want an explanation for this. Siesta? Hmm. You went home in the afternoon, you slept, and you went back to work. Explain, explain why that is part of the, 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 the routine as you're working in the field. Well, it's, um, we get up at 4 a.m. to avoid the heat of the day. Mm. And so when we get up that early, you need your rest. And we're working... By the time it gets to 1 o'clock, our, our work day in the field, digging, is over. And, uh, but our work isn't over. So we it's take, over because it's too hot? It, it, it's, yeah. We, it's we, too hot. And we've already worked eight hours by yeah, that point in yeah. time. We've worked eight hours. We put in our eight-hour shift, <laughs> so to speak. So we come home. We have lunch. Um, we have a siesta time. Some people don't sleep. Some people are working on their notes from what they excavated that, that day, some of the square supervisors. But it's good to get rest because six, eight weeks, um, fatigue is cumulative. And so most of us rest, and then we get up at 4.30, and then we analyze the pottery that comes through, and then we, um, that takes about two to two and a half hours every day. And then we go into, we have a lecture that evening for the students um, on various aspects of archaeology. We have guest lectures come in, we have dinner, and then there's uh, additional work that's done in the evening. By 10 o'clock, we're back asleep so we can wake up at 4 a.m. Big days. Yeah. How many days. days a week? We work five days a week. So we don't work on Fridays and Saturdays normally. Sunday, we work in the afternoon. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So it's, it's, it's very intense. At the end of six or eight weeks, you're ready for a vacation, actually. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's tough work. The but it's, it's, very, it's very rewarding. Yeah. And, you know, I, I just want to say this. It's very humbling because when you, when you realize that you're, you're excavating this giant haystack, to use that metaphor, 
um, and you're looking for these very tiny, tiny needles in this huge, huge mound that is that is Lachish or or these ancient Tel sites. Um, you know, if we had just this was found right at the edge of a square. If we had just decided yeah. to move that square a yeah. meter this yeah. direction, yeah. we would have never found that cone. Right. You know, we we might have our zooarchaeologists might not have been careful enough to see. Uh, Dr. Mamshuglu might not have might looked at it with her iPhone or what. Might not have put you know, the light in the right you know, place. Exactly. It makes yeah. us now wonder how many other combs Ooh. out there have inscriptions. You know, actually, that's something we talked about. Yeah. Uh, maybe we need to look at all the other combs in the museums and see. You know, these are things that, that can be missed. And, and it's very humbling to think that in that process of those years, um, this, this comes to light the way, the way it did. Yeah. Yeah, and that's so God's that's leading. just, that's God's leading. And it's, it's a very special object very tiny object, but with great significance for us today. So quick, what's going on at the Lynn H. Wood Archaeological Museum in Collegedale, Tennessee, and when do we get to see the comb, or do we? Well, that's a good question. We just had a, a grand opening of the comb exhibit at the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, which I attended uh, in May this year, uh, and we had about 180 scholars from around the world that were there. It was, we had a big conference on epigraphy, and then right after that we had the opening. The director of the Israel Museum was there. Um, we had it was really a, a special event for sure, and so it's on display at the Israel Museum right now, which obviously a lot of people can't go to. Uh, but we are going to. We have already uh, signed an agreement, and we're planning to have the comb here at Southern Adventist University in our Lynn H. Wood Archaeological Museum in January of 2025. Okay. After which it will not travel anymore. It will go back on permanent exhibit in the Israel Museum, so because we were able to get it just in the, yeah. And, and we have a special exhibit right now on our excavations at Lachish, yes. which has been open since last January, so people can come and visit, people can come and see the exhibit, and from January to May of 25, the comb will be there as well. I honestly think that museum is one of the best kept secrets in Christianity. I mean, here it is, a little corner of Tennessee, it's, it's a marvel, it's a wonder, it's a jewel. I would encourage people to go there anyway. But from January of 25, that special comb will be there for people to see. That's right. Fantastic. Exactly. Hey, thanks for taking your time. This has been great. Sure. It's always good. We appreciate you and your ministry. God bless you. And, and thanks. Thank you, John. Thank you. Great. And thank you. What a joy to have you. This has been fun, hasn't it? I appreciate you taking your time. He is Dr. Michael Hasel from Southern Adventist University. I'm John Bradshaw. This has been our conversation.